All right, we are, I, I have a handout over there if you want it, you don't have to have it. Okay, all right, well, uh, our section for today was pages 139 through 155, and um, it covered a few subjects, but overwhelming, it was, there was two things that it basically covered, but one, I just kind of focused on one, and, and, you know, she talked about saints, uh, Tupac Shakur. Did anybody have to Google Tupac Shakur? Hopefully, no, I not. Tupac Shakur was a rapper. You probably figured that out. Now, if you figured out where you know how old she was, she he was a rapper when she was younger. She, yeah, I I happen to like. I mean, when I read this for the first time, I was like, this is perfect. Now, uh, Pastor Bruzik and I have a. Uh, somewhat of an initiation rite that our current vicar has not been uh, forced to go through. And it, it, does, it does involve rap music. Because um, we, we uh, uh, I, I'm a firm believer that the life of the gangsta is, is similar to the life of the pastor. And, and Tupac Shakur has some nice... Uh, uh, Songs related to, uh, and basically the fundamental question to the vicar is, how does this apply to the life of the pastor? You, you better start listening to it, buddy. Um, now, I um, oh, I was just trying to think here. I remember, well, I remember what Vicar Uladalen, and I know what Pastor Bukes said after I had given him my songs to listen to. Uh, they were confused. So, so, yeah, the Tupac Shakur song that I, I give the vicars to listen to is Only God Can Judge Me Now. So you can look that up later. Although, maybe you want to listen to the radio version. Okay, anyways. So, uh, so okay, so Liza Saints. One is this Tupac Shakur where she, uh, you know, makes this case that, you know, maybe he, he uh, knew more about, you know, Good and evil than some some others, uh, and then uh, the life of uh, Augustine, uh, this father Augustine, who, the kind of the, the the priest who, the former slave who became a priest and and you know went to Rome and came back to the United States to to minister. So um, I thought, well, we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, before we do that, I thought, is there anything that you guys? Any open questions that you might want to discuss, or that I could say, "Hey, we're going to discuss that in a couple of weeks," or, or do you want to say anything about the, the reading that we've read this week? Anything else that stuck out? Krista. Um, she she was reading the Catholic. Uh, yes. Um, catechism. catechism, the Roman Catholic Catechism, yeah. as I like to say. Yeah, I was. I just was wondering, oh, which kind she would read. Uh, when we still attend um, the Catholic Church in Glen Ellen, and Günther bought, that was it's such a big uh, right. value. Yeah. And, uh, um, he was really, uh, I don't know if you would read the whole thing through, but it's very, very confusing. <laughs> it, well, it's very thorough. I mean, obviously by the size of it, it's, it's pretty thick. Yeah, yeah but um, with many, many questions. And Günther said, I wish you would read the yeah. Okay. Well, this this is good. So Krista brought up uh, the the Roman Catholic Catechism that she buys in this section, and she starts reading it. Um, 
Now, of course, Lutherans, we have uh, the small and large catechism. And as Lutherans, you know, we ascribe to the Book of Concord, and within the Book of Concord is the small and large catechisms. Now, one of the things that we don't do a great job as Lutherans is uh, kind of think about the catechism after confirmation. Um, the catechism is filled with a lot of... the, the uh, we, So we just kind of, we don't keep asking ourselves as we grow in wisdom and stature, uh, we don't keep applying some of these things to our lives. So, you know, when you're in eighth grade, you apply the small catechism as an eighth grader would. And then as a 38-year-old, you, would, you should apply the catechism as a 38-year-old. And that, that's really helpful for us as Lutherans because um, a, if you do read the Roman Catholic, cat, you know, just for fun or whatever, um, you'll find out that there are many things that are laid down in the Roman Catholic catechism, and, you know, it's kind of the final word. But within Lutheran, Lutheranism, there is, we're, we're very stressing on what Scripture says. So if there's not a word of Scripture attached to it, then there's not, we can't necessarily have faith in it. So, uh, you know, so there's certain things that, uh, it's not like as if it's open-ended, but it's that you keep applying these truths, or you, you keep applying the truth to you as you continue to grow as a, as a Christian. So, one of the things, uh, the Roman Catholic Catechism, the point of it is faith and morals, as it says in the prologue. So, faith and morals, as a Lutheran, we have the Book of Concord, to help us with our faith and morals. We, we wouldn't talk that way as Lutherans, but, you know, just for, for, for convenience sake. So, um, and that helps us understand, then, the Holy Scriptures, uh, to put it simply. So, yeah, this is a good reason why to pull out your little small catechism and ask yourself, uh, you know, what were those explanations are. And the thing I'm talking about, though, is the, the front part of your cat. I, I forgot to bring mine. Uh, so you have like the, 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 the traditional catechism and then you have all these question and answers in the back. And the question and answers are, are not what we like confess to. That that's not makes us Lutheran. Those are basically kind of talking points. So just FYI if you start reading those. Because some some of those, like I have like some of those questions and answers, first of all, I feel like it's it's not a good question. And then second of all, I feel like it's not a good answer too. But we we don't we don't confess to that as Lutherans. We don't say that this is the truth. Like this is this will help us understand Scripture. But we do say as Lutherans the small catechism and then the large catechism. And in your catechisms, if you ever ask yourself like, why do we even have these? There, uh, Martin Luther did write a preface to it, so you can find out why that even came about. It's kind of extraordinary because people didn't even like know like what the Ten Commandments were, literally. Like, they didn't know. And medieval piety, you were a good Christian if you could actually recite the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, not the explanations. And you knew the Lord's Prayer and the Creed. Other than that, it was like, whatever. So, do they still memorize the, the small catechism? Do who's they? The, the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, um... The, the parts of the catechism are really old, so like, 
so like the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, that was all part and parcel, and that's still part of the Roman Catholic Catechism. They'll say that. So all those parts, all that fat book is divided into basically three sections. But of course, Lutherans, we then added the parts on the sacraments, the baptism, confession, and the Lord's Supper, or sacrament of the altar. So, anywho. Okay. I say that because I didn't really want to talk about the catechism too much, but I did want to mention that just in case you're asking yourself, well, we don't have something like that. Well, we actually do. And if you know your small catechism and explanations, that's great. But you do have to ask yourself as an adult, like, how would you think about these things differently? And I think it's really important, too, because, um, yeah, you just need to. <laughs> and, and then, like, the large catechism is, is not a, it's more of a, uh, so the small catechism was more about, like, reciting, just kind of like what we do now, learning by heart and reciting. And then the large catechism is more about reading. Does that make sense? So, like, one you had to, like, re- like, confess out loud. The other one you just read for learning. And you'll, if you read it, you would know, you, you would understand what that means. Okay. Needless to say, anything else? Jan. When she was talking with her mama in that last chapter that we read for today, and her mom said to her, you do remember that you were baptized. Right. Right. You know, when her husband talked about his baptism, there wasn't anything said about hers, so I don't know if she didn't remember it at that point or if I missed it, one of the two. Right. But, you know, all the while I've been trying to figure out where this insatiable... Yeah, right. ...that she had to find out about God was coming from, and... Um, it's starting to make sense now. Yeah, right. In, in her life, and, you know, for those of us who have kids that don't go to church at the moment, that gives us hope that they were baptized. And... That's right. Now, uh, Jan brings up a good point. Now, I, I, I mean, whether she's conscious of these writing techniques, uh, I don't know, but this is a good point. Because with respect to Joe's faith, the big thing was this baptism and kind of this experience from his baptism. Um and I think the last line of our, on page 155, I think she, she, she asks herself, has there been these forces uh, influencing her life, you know, in the background? And she's now just starting to understand that. She just dusted the mirror. And then... Yeah, right. Um, what do you hope so for people who have lost the faith? Well, yeah, so this... I have relatives who have lost the faith. All right, this... You've been baptized, and you're like, well, we always like cling on to that part, that... Yeah, right. They, they're God's children, even though they've rejected it. Oh, yeah, right. Because, like, even when your kids are in college, and then you know they're not going to church. <laughs> <laughs> despite, all, despite our various subtle... Denial is a powerful thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> if they do go, they'll be sure and let you know. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, but... <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> but I, you do cling even as a parent. You're yeah, like, right. Well, hey. Yeah. I always, I just like send them little notes. Remember the gifts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, this is this is actually a very good thing because um, so so she brings up that question though about like um, you know a person's faith and 
heaven and hell and, and you know, it's part of the same, this tapestry that Kirby's just talking about. So one of the things is that, uh, so interceding, like as a parent you always intercede for your children, and when you intercede, you intercede because you trust that God, you trust God. I mean, you're basically going to trust God. He's going to do what he said he was going to do. And I think you guys made me talk about that last week about like our prayers of lament and try, holding God to his word. I, I, Pastor Beek said that. He, he mentioned that. I don't know. Um, and so part of that is, is interceding for these people. And one of the things, uh, too, about these people who have been baptized is that, so how you see this person uh, kind of remove your family just for a second, just kind of people in general. How you see this person, this, so it, your, your basic stance toward this person is that God loved this person, died for this person, has saved this person. And there's really, so you really have to ask yourself, when does that, when does that stop being the case? So, and so this, this deals with kind of your question about, like our, our question, Jennifer Fuller's question about like who's in heaven and who's in hell and how, uh, how often we think we kind of know about this stuff when in fact we don't. Um, because you, uh, you never know, well, if, okay, we often give lip service to you can't read a person's heart, but of course we always say that person's in heaven or hell, I mean. And we usually, it's in the negative, like, you know. Um, well, you really don't, you can't read, you can't judge this person's heart. I mean, Scripture confesses that only God knows that. So if that's the case, then we will probably be surprised who's in heaven and who's not in heaven. And if that's the case, then, then this whole question about, you know, who's in heaven and who's hell, like Jennifer Fuller asks, you know, I don't know if I can believe in a God who's going to have Tupacicor in hell or whatever, which seems like an odd question just in general. But um, her, her basic premise is, is a good one because we never give up hope. And our hope is actually in real things, in baptism. I mean, that would be the simplest one. So our hope is in baptism, and that hope does not, like, you have to have a good reason not to hope anymore. And your reason, though, your, your reason has to be found in Scripture and or Christ himself, and it can't be about how you feel about it. Because often the way we feel, we condemn people to hell a lot easier than God does. Or whether God actually condemns people to hell. Which goes then, I don't want, well, so, what do we believe about, you know, people in hell? Uh, we actually, you know, Lutherans actually believe something about hell, and it's actually in the book of Concord. There's two things. Uh, the formula of Concord. First of all, those who might not know who the book is. The book of Concord is uh, several documents from the Reformation period. We just celebrated Reformation, Reformation Day a couple weeks ago. Uh, the parts are the Augsburg Confession, the apology to the Augsburg Confession, apology being like a defense, not like, hey, I'm sorry, um, then uh, the small and large catechisms, something called the small card, small called articles, and there's two parts to that. Uh, and then the formula of Concord, which has two parts to that. 1525 to 1580, that's kind of the span of these documents. Um, okay, it's a little nerd bill right there, but you know, you should probably know that as Lutherans. Uh, the formula of Concord has a article, Article Nine, on Christ's descent into hell. 
we confessed that in the apostles. We just said that right in the chapel. And um, at that time, uh, both the Calvinists and the Roman Catholics were saying a lot of things about what that meant. And Lutherans said, wait a second. There's a lot, these, a lot of these answers are speculation. But what Scripture says is only this. So that's, that's why it was written. And what uh, we confess as Lutherans is, first it happened. Christ did go into hell. Uh, his whole person, body and soul, like, you know, like as a you know, full thing, it wasn't like just his spirit or whatever. It's just the whole, the whole Jesus went into hell. And, he, and hell has no more power for believers or the devil. This is, that's important because it was from, from ramifications to what that means. Okay. Um, so, so with respect to the, so believers, I mean, this is really important for us because we, our trust is always in God's work, not our own. And so with respect to baptism then, those who have been given faith, who, who as the man from Mark 9 says, I believe help my own belief, hell has no power over that person. That's, that's, that's really hopeful then. That, that's what I'm getting at. This is a stance towards these people who have been baptized. It's very, very hopeful. And we put our hope then in the work of God. And so, um, uh, because of Christ's work, he's disarmed all this stuff. And so then we have great hope and faith then. Now, uh, and so we reserve that judgment for God, ultimately. So we are always optimistic about one's salvation. And that, that I really got to stress that. Because um, when you say someone's in hell, there's two things you do. What do you feel about that person? And you have to use this word. You hate him. And it, there's no other way to say it. That's truthful. You hate this person. Because you're condemning them to hell. All right? Because, uh, again... You, you, there's no way you can say this. You don't know this. And then also, too, then when you condemn to hell, you're reserving the judgment that only God can give. Yeah, so you're putting yourself in the place of God, which is a precarious position. Karin. I have a question. Um, I was not baptized as a youth of baby. I was baptized when I was in my... I started on this plane. Okay. And, um, and, and I knew from... South here, mm-hmm. South Mexico, South Mexico. Okay. And what would you say to me? I'd say praise God. I, I, what do you mean? I, I praise God you're baptized. Uh, the other thing, uh, so, so you're asking me, like, what before my baptism? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, did you believe? I mean, there's another thing. So, so the, the sacraments provide a certainty that our confession doesn't. So one can... So, Scripture also says uh, uh, you can only say "Lord, Lord" by but by by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is in you, active in you to say these words. Okay, great. Then that means then God's present with you in your life. Okay, but of course we also will say the craziest things. You know, I mean, we will say things we don't believe. Okay, so but with res- with respect to even your confession of faith, it's never on your confession, but but the work of the Holy Spirit. So you always thrust your... So how does the Holy Spirit work? 
This is another great Lutheran thing, Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession. It works through means, word, and sacraments. So word. So, Karen, I'm assuming that you heard God's word, you heard the gospel, okay, and you were, and you, you, know, you were brought into the God's family. I'm assuming that. Uh, then you were baptized. So that was, uh, that's even more certain. Because you can always look towards something that's happened to you. The large catechism, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm getting really nerdy here, but I just want, basically I want to say this because Jennifer Fullwater now from this point in the book will start talking a lot about Roman Catholicism. And, uh, and I, I, Pastor Bukes and I have been kind of thinking about like how we want to talk to you guys about the fact that Lutheranism is very rich and deep and wonderful, um, and it's more than probably we've, you know, kind of grown up learning. And I mean, it's a good thing you're at St. John, I think, because <laughs> we get to talk about these things. So, uh, so you hear a lot of maybe nerdy things. All right. Anyways, so Augsburg Confession, number five, Article five: How does the Holy Spirit work by through means the Word and the sacraments? Um, Okay, so there you go, Karen. Nancy. Yeah, I hope I'm not getting off the subject, but you know, having been around a bunch of non-Lutherans, right? Once saved, always saved. Uh, you know, is was kind of a mantra among certain. Yeah, right. Of course, yeah. And sometimes it was kind of used. Well, yeah, my brother, my son, you know, my daughter, whatever, they're doing all these horrible things, but they once they made a profession of faith, and therefore, you know, nothing. They, they're they're in the right. club. Now, what about, I mean, what is the Lutheran position? Can a person right. reject their... That's right. Oh, yeah, absolutely can reject. So the question would be whether God rejects your rejection. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's real important because uh, it's not up to you. <laughs> Ultimately, your salvation is not up to you. So, uh, and, and this, this is kind of the thing, though, is that... so. There is a, so there's the pastoral side of things. How do we as, and when I say pastoral, I don't mean exclusively just pastors, but like how do we care for one another? And, okay, so uh, once saved, always saved. Or, hey, you're baptized, don't worry about it. That would be the Lutheran version, right? Now, are they, is that person rejoicing in the gifts as, as Kirby tells her children? Absolutely not. So, so there is a point where we say to someone who is baptized and basically kind of living the prodigal son life, you say, stop doing that. That is not, that's not what God wants. And God wants what's best for you. And this is, how do we know what God wants best for you? Well, because he tells us. What does he tell us? Well, he tells us in the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, John Kleinig has a great little thing about a good conscience, living life with a good conscience. Um, and, and he talks about this, this life. I think you can type in John Kleinig, and he has a great website. One of his students, and I think you can click on the little lecture. You should listen to it. Um, okay, uh, so so yeah, so this would be the thing is that so. But now we're we're really talking about like when someone's dead, right? I mean, this is this is let's get right to it. Uh, okay, so when someone has de- de- died, and oh man, they were baptized, but they lived their life like this. Oh my word. Okay, well, does the church say, hey, don't worry about it. We'll, you know, we'll do the whole nine yards and we'll have a, a funeral mass for him and all that jazz. Well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. I don't know. Um, and that's where the pastoral side of things come in because, first of all, would that actually help the family? 
Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I did a funeral one time for a, a man who I had a, developed a relationship with, but in his, he made a lot of confessions towards the end of his life. And one of the things he confessed was ruining his family because he divorced his first wife and, and it, it, he ran out on him, basically. In irony of ironies, he ran into his wife, who at that time had Alzheimer's. And his kids were like, you do not talk to her. And he wanted to confess to her. And he, I mean, he wanted to make all these confessions. Well, uh, so the funeral. Now, I haven't met all his kids. I met one. And one of his, his sons comes up to me and, and starts talking to me. And I thought he wanted to know about his dad's confessions. I mean, this is a good thing. And he didn't. He hated his dad. And he, he, was, he did not want to... He, he, was, he didn't even think there should be a funeral for him. Now, knowing all that stuff, I would have probably have, you know, handled myself a little differently in terms of, you know, working with his, his family. But, you know, that, that's kind of, the, that's another aspect of how we kind of care for people. But in terms of my hope for this person, I, you know, I hope that God has mercy on them. Because I, I hope God has mercy on everybody. This goes along with the prayer of the dead bit in, inside the book. And, uh, you know, as Lutherans, we don't really pray for the dead. But there's nothing wrong with praying for the dead, as long as we pray in a very specific way. The lives of the saints for Lutherans, all saints day, right, last week. Lutherans define saints as basically holy ones, those who have been sanctified or holied. And those, that's basically baptized people, the holy ones. Um, so the question would be, if I'm praying for people that got to have mercy on you now, my question would be, why wouldn't I, I mean, why wouldn't I, why would I stop praying that prayer for someone? Because they need it. Okay, this is a good question. When do you not ever need God's mercy? This is a good question. Point. There you go. Now the question would be, though, it's great, but you always need God's mercy. Yes, you get it. And you get it even more in heaven, but it's not like he like stops having mercy on you. Because what is mercy always attached to? What? Love. Faith, hope, and love, right? The greatest one of these is love. So this is very important. So I, I you know, but when, so the question about okay, there's another thing too about praying for the dead, or to the dead, or however she said it. it it's not something that I do often, but. I was talking with Mary about this. Uh, there, was a, there was a man on my vicarage who uh, loved his wife very much. She passed away, and he often would talk to her. But he had this crisis of conscience. He's like, Pastor, I think maybe I'm going crazy. Because he would, he would talk to her. He would hear back from her. He would see her sometimes. And he was really concerned. He thought, am I going crazy? You know, I said, no, I was like, probably not. I mean, you seem pretty normal. Uh, you know, of course, I, I, have, I have no authority to actually say that, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but I just said, you know, that, that's God's little gifts to you, you know, that you have a chance to, you know, because he, he, he was told, well, once they're dead, I have no more contact. They're gone for, you know, there's this, like, I won't have any relationship with this person. Like, you know, how is that a good thing? It's, I don't think it is. Plus, I don't think it's biblical. So, 
Uh, and we don't actually confess that in the liturgy. Uh, but anyway, so the whole point is, is that, there, you know, we have this, so, like, if you, you know, I, I can imagine myself, you know, at some point, you know, uh, you know, if I, if my parents die before I die, you know, just thinking about my mom and dad and, and saying, you know, I wish you were here. Okay, what is that? Just that little statement. That is a prayer. I mean, that is, I, I'm talking to them. You know? You know, is that wrong to do? I don't think so. No. Now, do we have any faith that, you know, they're hearing it? Uh, maybe. Uh, our, our Lutheran confession, uh, I don't know if you still have the bulletin from last week, but I didn't, I didn't put that in the outline at length, but we as Lutherans actually believe that those in heaven pray for us. They do pray for us. Um, so my question would be, what do they pray for? Stuff we need. I mean, stuff that we actually... So, anyways, I, you know, I would think that my parents would be praying that I would be able to get out with life without them. You know? I would have hope in the resurrection. Those are all good things. That's not against what the Bible says. All right. Holly first, then Penny. Yes, that's different. The purgatory line, you know, like, yeah. here, but if I pray hard enough for them, that God would be more merciful. Because <laughs> yeah. I think of, like, Lazarus right. trying to go down to see his... Yes, right, yeah, right. In hell, and he's like, they didn't believe me when, I was, when they were here. Right. You think they're going to believe me when you go down to hell to tell them? Yeah, no, yeah, so this is good. So you have to, you have to distinguish. This is good. Um, so Don, the guy I was talking about, he, he was not interested in changing any sort of, like, outcome. But he was also, he was just concerned about mercy. So, I mean, God having mercy on him, but also having mercy on, on his, his wife. And, and that's something that, again, that doesn't change, but with respect to what Holly says, um, does prayer ever change God's mind? Yes. Okay, so now, now, so the question would be, so when I pray for war to stop here on earth, you know, am I petitioning God to change his mind? Okay, good, thank you. You don't know what his mind is. So you stick, you stick with what he has told you. He, and this is why the Lutheran confessions are, are, I mean, this is really a good thing about being Lutheran, is that we stick with what we actually know, like have, have some uh, weight to, and that's, that's Holy Scripture. So, um, so the Lazarus story in Luke is very helpful because what is God's response to the rich man? Uh, does anyone remember? And I, I didn't think about it. I should have put that in the outline. I didn't think about it. Yeah, you had your good stuff. Now Lazarus has his good stuff now. But what does he, what does he say about it, uh, the rich man's family? Because the rich man's like, you know, man, please, someone's got to go back and tell them about this place. Oh, they already got they what all they need. That's right. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament, which is very peculiar for us because we don't think that the old, we think, oh, well, now it's easy to believe this stuff because Jesus is around and we have the New Testament. But then also, so they don't, they don't need anybody to go back because they got the law and the prophets. And then the last little line of that, that little story. They wouldn't believe. So now, now we have a foresight to Jesus rising from the dead. So, um, 
Yeah. So we have all we need in the Holy Scripture. So we stick with that. And part of the problem with, I hear a lot of like old, like I didn't say old time, but things that I heard as a child about who's going to hell, who's going to heaven, you know, our relationship to those who've passed away, I think is actually extra biblical. Like in the, like the negative and where like a lot of Roman Catholic doctrine is extra biblical, like in the positive, like we have this. Yes. Outside the Bible. All right, Penny. That's okay. Oh. <laughs> it was a heaven question, and I think I'm, you know, that's actually going to take us down a slippery slope where we don't need to go. So. Heaven is for real. No matter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I actually had the Bible though to tell me, not a little boy. So, all right. I don't want to bang on a little boy though, because that would be mean. Krista. But question is, hell is real too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as Jesus said. Yeah. And is it not that he died for our sins that we don't go to hell? Yeah, right, but who goes to hell? Those who don't believe. Yeah, those who reject. And Christ descended to hell is very important for us because he has rendered hell powerless. So if you don't, so there's this very interesting thing is that those who believe, now it doesn't actually say who believed a lot or believed a little. Those who believe... Hell is powerless against them. So hell has power only for those who what? Who want it, who choose it. This is, I mean, this is a very, very interesting thing, and this is the thing that we, we sure like to have binary options, don't we? It's either this or that. And what the, the, uh, the uh, formula of Concord says, well, yeah, it's binary, but not in the way that we think it is. Uh, belief, belief, is, uh, faith is very powerful. So yes, Krista, you're right. Yeah, heaven is for real. Oh my word! I, hopefully, I didn't give that impression. And it is, it is a terrible place. Oh, yeah, yeah, hell. Sorry, hell is. Bad. <laughs> all right, there you go. All right. I, I, I see all these like uh, surveys, you know. Yeah. I see them in my elevator, you know. <laughs> but the, the people who believe in hell is going down. Right. So you got a whole bunch of people. I mean, I was just thinking about if we were talking, even the expression "go to hell." Right. Like, that was way more common when I was a young girl. That was how you essentially. Now you just tell people to up. I mean, it's yeah, right. Really like it's been replaced. Like Mary, you can bleep that out, right? Yeah, I just like to say that. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just thinking about how that was like the worst thing that. That's right. Happened, you know, and now we've replaced that with this uh, with with yeah, right. vulgar like. Well, yeah, yeah. What's hell? Yeah, well, actually, actually she's. Yeah, right. Well, because, yeah, hell can't be, I mean, yeah, right. Well, and, and it's one of those things where denial is very powerful because we don't want to believe in a place that if hell doesn't exist, then I won't go to it. Which means then I can just do whatever I want because there will be no ramifications for my unbelief. Um, and, and, but, of course, that's not true. I mean, your unbelief, I mean, and this is where people don't kind of play it out is that, um, and this goes to the question, too, a little bit about this tangential to the question about like once saved always saved or hey I've been baptized I can do whatever I want um, is that we don't think about the ramifications of our own choice in, in life just our choices in life we think that I can decide my own fate I can just make things I mean but really there are consequences to what we do and hell is a consequence for basically 
just rejecting God's love. I mean, it, here's the thing. I mean, this is where we, we, people are rejecting hell because they believe that God is this punisher and hates people, and then because he hates them, he sends them to hell. But of course, the biblical narrative is not like that. Even in the, we were reading the prophets in the morning, uh, at the morning Lord's Supper, and Micah is very, very interesting. Yesterday's reading was just so interesting for me. Oh my gosh. Uh, people are eating people. They're, like, it's just awful. And God's like, but I've been, empo- I've been em- empowered by the Holy Spirit, or with the Spirit of the Lord, uh, for justice. And, well, what does that mean? Well, if you read the prophets and you know the history of, of what happens, God doesn't really do all these things that he's going to do. I'm going to smoke you. I'm going to eradicate you from the earth. No, he doesn't. He, he, justice is his mercy. I mean, this is one of the interesting things is that, well, he does eradicate Israel from the earth. When? Kind of a trick question. When he sends Jesus to hell. I mean, this is one of the things. Jesus takes our place in all things. And this, this is the profoundness of, of what Christ does for us. But, all right, so, but the thing is, though, like, on our lives, God does, he, he eventually, he's really angry. He's like, I hate you people. Hate being colloquial, not absolute. And then he, and then he relents. He just, he, he changes it and he blames it on Jesus. So this is one of the things in reading those prophets is that even when it looks like God's going to send people to hell, he only sends Jesus. And this is very important for us, because those who are in hell choose hell. The only person that was sent to hell was Jesus. And why? To take our spot. And of course, though, to, re, you know, to, redeem, to disarm it. I mean, all, all the great stuff that it says in the Formula Concord. All right, Sarah. Yeah. They're saying that when they get older, well, then they can choose. You know, right. What but I just I worry about those children. Yeah, that's good. That's a good worry. You know, and while they're babies, you know, I, I hope that there would be mercy on them. But as they get older, they. they don't yeah. Well, okay. So this would be a good question about the fabric or the tapestry of that family's spiritual life. Um, you know, I mean, like, so I, 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 my family is Baptist, so that you know, they don't baptize babies. Now, are my nieces and nephews growing up in, in faithful homes? Absolutely. They're Baptist homes, though. I mean, which don't baptize babies. Um, but are they, are, they, are they learning to pray? Uh, you know, are they learning God's word? Absolutely. Um, and so we have this external word still being taught to them. So we have faith in that. Now, again, though, the question would be, is that best? And I would say no, I mean, because we're Lutherans, and I like being a Lutheran, and I think that's the way it should go. But if people are withholding baptism in order for them to make their own choice and then subsequently not going to church or not having a life of faith, that, that's, that's a precarious position to be in. Yeah. And actually, they're making the choice by not... Well, yeah, it's good. Okay, good. Very smart. So this is, this is kind of the irony of ironies, right? They say they're, they're going to let their children make a choice, but of course, par- your parents are always making choices for their children. Come on, I mean, like, what, like, where do you, like, what do you think is happening? It feels like a cop-out. Well, that's exactly, that's why I want to ask about the spiritual life of this family. They're not going to choose the life of faith, except the people 
like this to have this. But yeah, right. If you don't teach your kids anything, how are they going to learn? They're just going to go outside and play. Well, so this is another thing too. Is like, okay, so let's let's talk about the most important decisions in life as a child. Who makes those decisions? Parents. You're gonna get it, you're gonna like you know you're gonna give your kids shots. All right, Billy, do you want a shot? Yes, that will that will help you not have polio or, or whatever. Be like, no. I do not want a shot. Thank you very much. Well, you know, if you don't get a flu shot, you might get the flu. I don't care. So, uh, so I mean, okay, so okay, so we make our decisions right about you know preventing sickness for our children. Uh, but of course, when it comes to like our spiritual lives of our children, we're like, well, whatever. Okay. Uh, it's not real helpful, is it? Parents are telling the kids it's not that important to them. Well, right. So now we have a whole other can of worms. Yeah. Any parental wisdom you want to give your children, like religious or aside? Anything, yeah, right. You're making you always want, you're always trying to right. ingrain that in your kids. So obviously, the parents don't have to think it's that. Kids are like, well, it's not that important for my parents. Right. Spend a lot of time doing it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so how do you respond to those people? If you are close to them, sometimes you've got to have that difficult decision. I mean, difficult uh, conversation. They're like, hey, listen, you know, I know you don't want to baptize your baby, but like, is your baby even like being grown up in a Christian home? Like, do you pray at night? I mean, do you read the Bible as a family? Like, is your child even being exposed to faith? Now, um, and so they have, to, they have to consciously say, it's not important to us. And if, so, so at least they're honest with themselves, you know? Like you said, it was a cop-out. Once we, uh, oh, oh, this is great. Um, oh, my, it's in this section, right, where she talks about the rationalization of evil, right? I mean, we're very, we're very good at rationalizing a lot of things. And when, as parents, especially with the, the, uh, our, the spiritual lives of ourselves and our children, we are pretty good at rationalizing because if I'm going to wait for my child to make their own decision, that means I don't have to be responsible for it. And when I'm not responsible for it, then I'm off the hook. And I can't be blamed for it. My parents made them decision. Yeah. That's the, the <coughs> first. And I completely And then I'm going to get back to how they decided to place. And those of them show up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I, this is right. So, so, so we, uh, Karen, this is very interesting. So, Karen, you know, so the idea is that your parents, you know, kind of let let you go and do your own thing, um, but of course, they made that decision for you in a sense, right? And you know, so it's kind of like now, and then they show up at your baptism, and they, you know, it's kind of like, well, why are you even here, right? I mean, you didn't care enough before. Why are you caring now, right? Which you know, that's a whole other family dynamic, Kathy. Yeah, that's a new tradition. And so it's, there's a dedication. Yeah, well, it's a, historically there hasn't been. So like Baptist says, like, uh, Bapti- like uh, so the beginning of Baptist, which came out of the Reformation, did not have any child dedication. And if you trace the history of child dedication, where do you think child dedication came from? <laughs> no, 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 no. Dedication grew out of people who 
used to baptize babies. Well, uh, so you do have some dedication of children in Scripture, Old Testament, and uh, and then um, you had the uh, uh, after. Uh, oh my gosh, uh, Exodus thirteen, the firstborn is uh, the one who breaks the womb is. Yeah, it's it's not a dedication in general, like hey, this is your child, but this is dedicated for something specific. So it's not even like the Bible, like their dedication services. It's not like what it's even in the Old Testament. So, yeah. So that's a whole different issue. Basically, the dedication is saying, hey, this is God's child, and hopefully at some day they will confess the faith and become a Christian. I mean, that, that's in a nutshell. Well, that, would, I, that might be a little too cynical. I don't know. But but Kathy though Kathy though the, the whole the, the whole that whole emphasis is a proper emphasis right of course we want our children to be you know raised as Christians it's just that there is no there's there's no promise attached to it mm-hmm. but but I think when we're talking about you know when we're talking about Baptists making a conscious decision not to baptize baby baptize babies is there a belief that I you know this is Right, right. They're raising them. Yeah, they're they're raising them as Baptists. That's right. right. Yeah, we can't we can't apply Lutheran doctrine to a Baptist family. That just that's like calling you know. I always I like doing. I did this with my children the other day, explaining apples and oranges. What does that phrase mean? Isaac asked me. I was like, well, you know, do I ever like when I buy? I had a, a Honeycrisp apples, by the way, are on sale. So I, I was biting. I was eating my apple, and I was like, man, this is a terrible orange. Like, what are you talking about? It's an apple. I'm like, exactly. So you can't apply something to some, you know. So, so yeah. So this is one of the things too. Is you know, as a Lutheran family that has a uh, Baptist family too, is that like I can't say to them, "How dare you do this? This is you know wrong." Well, they're they're Baptist people. You know, they have a whole doctrine. They have their own doctrine that's aside from them. And I, I would just say that that's not that's not that's not the that's not what the Bible says. Of course, now they're going to argue with me and all that stuff. But, um, you know, so that's the case. But the, the child dedication, though, is a, is a peculiar thing because, like, for instance, uh, when my best friend growing up, who's a Baptist pastor, and my family, they ask about what I think about their children. So you're saying if my child dies, they're going to hell. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that they're sinners and they need they need God's forgiveness and they need His salvation. And one of the ways that Scripture uh, gives that is through baptism. So you're saying my child's going to go to hell? No, that's not what I'm saying. I uh, th- this is literally the conversation I had. Okay, this is, I mean, wow. I mean, it was a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's part of the thing, is that the child dedication, as a Lutheran, I have to say, well, where does this come from? Why are you doing this? And I think oftentimes, well, they could be doing it for a variety of reasons. For a party, as, as, as Katie said, or, or because they genuinely, they really have this hope for this child to become part of God's family. I mean, this is part of the Baptist doctrine. This child is not part of the family of God until they confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, 
So to a certain extent, there is a, uh, they live a life in between, hoping, wondering, will this happen? Well, they also have this doctrine of the age of accountability, which the child is not accountable for what their sin until they have come to this age of reason. Um, again, which is not necessarily biblical. Well, I would argue it's not biblical. Um, well, yeah, yeah. So now, the question, Kathy, you ask a very just a simple question, which is very normal. Well, when does that happen? And uh, I think I, th- I think most Baptists would say, well, we don't know exactly. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, according to their doctrine, that's true. But I think sometimes they say, well, around you know seven or eight. Well, I don't know, maybe. I mean, especially as I mean, I feel like I was really immature for my age. You know, growing up, I'm like, so maybe, maybe it was 12 or 13, 14. I don't know, for me, you know? I mean, who knows? If they don't make that confession, the parents send them to camp. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. So that, that's, that's the beginning of the General for Fullwiler story, right? That's where we all started this book. Yeah, that's very funny, Marilyn. That's right. Oh, I trust me. Yeah, this and we kind of joke about it, but it, but it, the thing is, is you know, we probably shouldn't joke about it. But uh, is that um, you know, as much as we want to, so this is this is part of like our desire to be unified as Christians, right? Is that these the, these are the moments where the rubber hits the road, and we realize that we're not quite on the same page, and uh, as as a as a Christian, we just have to simply say, okay, and we, we just have to let them be who they, you know, or who they want to be, and then just simply, you know, I would say pray for them, not in a, not in a like, they're going to go to hell kind of way. I mean, I, I just think about what's best, and I always think being a Lutheran's best. <laughs> Now, that's a simple way to say it, because, I, I mean, some people call them Lutheran, you know. Yeah, well, I've said that in the Reformation sermon. Okay. I just want to say, Donna. Uh, when I was talking with some friends uh, about baptism, yeah, uh, and they were saying, well, I'm, we're not going to have our child baptized until such and such an age, yeah. I tell them that um, our church uh, baptizes infants because it's a very special gift from God. Whereby they receive the Holy Spirit, right, and they they come to faith. Yep. And it's a precious gift, and we we want our children to have it. Some are even baptized in the hospitals. Right. And um, we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I think the Baptists use that. Right, right. That, you know, God works through the word. That's right. He also said, let the children come to me, and the other passage. Uh, yeah. Baptize will oh, go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. Yeah, right. So if they can receive this gift when they're babies, right. then if something should happen to them, sure. then we're assured that that child is with the Lord. Yeah, right. He made them. He put his name on them. Right, right, right. Uh, now, this is something, too, going back to the small catechism, is very helpful. Baptism is not just plain water, but what? Water with the word. Now, if you've been to the early Lord's Supper class, you know baptism is not a hot water, not a cold water, not a muddy water, but it's a wordy water. <laughs> and that wordy water sticks to you like a tattoo. Um, 
you can pretend it's not there. You can really not like that tattoo, but it is, it's, it's stuck on you. Um, so, and this is, I mean, oh, again, this is a great thing about, you know, this knowing your, your, your catechisms is you can say that to people because it is the word. That's right. Very good. You're right. That's right. I, that, that, okay, so I had this conversation with my brother a long time ago. That's right. It is the word. Which word is it? Well, it's the one that, in Matthew 28, that says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The other thing, too, is all nations. You know, our little children part of nations. All people. It's, it, that's another way. Nations, when we see the word nations, we think political states. But Jesus wasn't talking about countries. It was talking about people. Um, okay, we didn't talk about saints too much, but I really want to. So in the next three minutes, so this is really important. So the Augsburg Confession talks about saints, and you can go ahead and read it. It's, it's, it's uh, Article 21. Um, saints are important to Lutherans. Uh, in fact, uh, I just finished a book by C, from CPH. It was translated by Kevin Walker. Ernst Zeter, I think, is the German guy who wrote it. I can't remember the title. You can look those up. You can buy it on CPH. Uh, it is very interesting to read because the lives of the saints and saints' days were very prominent in, in Reformation. It wasn't, they didn't fall out of use until like the 1800s. Yeah. In some places, 18th century, which would be 1700s in other places. But, you know, it's several hundred years where lives of saints and the, the saint days were just kind of normal. Why is that? Well, for three reasons... I think I put them on. I think it's on the back, back of the second page. Yep, okay. First, saints are gifts. And we rejoice in the gifts. Why are they gifts? Well, they're always connected to the gift of Jesus Christ. That's why I read John chapter 3, by the way. I don't know if you understood that. So John the Baptist says, hey, I'm not the Christ. He's the Christ. I must decrease, he must increase. That is the lives of the saints. That's what saints do. Okay. Uh, strengtheners of faith. Uh, they testify that, that this God of the gospel is one who forgives, and they also testify, well, and then they show, like St. Peter's denial, confession, restoration, continue to struggle to live as a Christian life. So they, they strengthen our faith by, you know, just who they are. And then finally, they give us people to imitate, which would kind of resonate with what Jennifer Fulwire says about this uh, Father Augustine. I, I put that quote, I think, at the beginning of this thing. Uh, so these are the three reasons why saints are, are important. Saints said saints are, their gifts, strengtheners of faith. I don't know if strengtheners is actually a word, but... And then imitate. Now, why does that all happen? And that, that's because of the role of the Holy Spirit inside them. So saints don't point to themselves but point to Christ. John the Baptist, the Virgin Mary, Mother of our Lord. And what's interesting about them is uh, those two people, they're kind of like saints par excellence. We celebrate their nativity. Well, I mean, we don't always do it, but their birth, their death. You know, they're kind of, anyways. But... Um, Oh, yeah, and also, too, the, the lives of the saints 
according to Lutheranism, will help us become Christians and be Christians, not distract us from Jesus. And uh, I have uh, several things about Advent in here, but um, St. Nicholas, St. Lucy, those are days in Advent. And if you've talked to me before about it, I feel like those are two saint days that can be very important in Advent because uh, they help us look forward to baby Jesus. Um, obviously, in the, in the time of the Reformation, saints distracted people from Jesus. But as Lutherans, as people who look to reform, not reject, Lutherans re helped us understand what saints do, not to get rid of saints, but to to put them in a proper perspective. So I think St. Nicholas and St. Lucy can be very helpful for us in Advent, where, what's Christmas, what's Advent about now these days? Yeah, come on. Yeah, it's, it's about shopping, it's consumerism, materialistic, it's terrible. I think I put What Would Jesus Buy? <laughs> it's a great movie, by the way, you should watch it. Um, uh, you uh, and so focusing on Saint Nicholas and Saint Lucy will direct our eyes back to, to towards Jesus and away from the sales and materialism of, of, of that quote unquote Christmas season. All right. Anyways, um, you are, there's a lot of stuff to look up if you want, but uh, yeah, the next I can't remember what the next section's about. I'm sure it's pretty good. Uh, it's something. Oh, that, okay, that is the... the so, uh, yeah, it's a little graphic if you haven't read that far. Um, I couldn't remember if it was next week or the final week. Uh, to be honest, it's okay if you want to skip it. Don't feel like you're obligated to read it, because if it's too hard to read, it's... I mean, I, had a, I, mean, it's, it's kinda, I feel like it's overwhelming. It's only two pages. Okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.